Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. Today, we're going to talk about an exit strategy for opiate analgesics, primarily looking at tapering opioids. And this is something that can be very challenging. So ideally, what you want to be able to do is to prevent a situation where it becomes more challenging when patients have been on these opiates uh, for a long period of time, especially in the management of acute pain, that the patient understands that these are incredibly important medications that we use for acute pain over a short period of time, so on average about three to five days, and that the longer we leave patients on those, the more difficult it is to taper patients. So tapering opioids is much easier when you've had that conversation with the patient prior to starting it, when we can expect to uh, taper it, also how we can expect to monitor their use of the opioids in order to keep them safe. So what we're going to work on is we're going to talk about the Canadian guidelines for safe and effective opiates, what their recommendations are, look at some of the common barriers to tapering opioids, including the role of tolerance and dependency. Uh, And also if your patient has developed a substance use disorder or addiction, and uh, we're going to talk about tapering uh, opioids in patients with very complex pain, including patients who have been on opiates for a long period of time, and those that are not ready to taper, even when you have some concerns around an opiate use disorder. So why would we taper? So this is where the Canadian guidelines for safe and effective use of opioids comes in. And so it would be, if you actually look at the different recommendations that are there, we're talking about recommendation number 13. So why we would taper opioids, it's primarily when patients are experiencing unacceptable adverse effects or insufficient opiate effectiveness from one particular opioid. So one of the things that we can do is we can actually uh, prescribe a different opioid or discontinue the treatment. So the evidence for that is what we call grade B evidence. So what is the evidence to taper? The first bit of evidence is what we call lack of efficacy. That means the patient is really not getting any benefit to the management of their pain, or their pain is increasingly more incapacitated even when we taper upward, or if they're experiencing withdrawal-mediated pain, which is actually quite common, especially when patients are left on short-acting opiate analgesics. The other evidence that we have is if the patient's experiencing an adverse event, So this is where we would see opiate-induced toxicity or that hyperalgesia, as well as if they've developed uh, an opiate use disorder. The other third category would be tapering the medication leads to an improvement in the patient's mood function and overall to their pain. So how confident do we feel in that uh, goal of tapering? Well, there's a really excellent uh, paper that I would highly recommend written by Nora uh, Volko, who is a research scientist in the Centers of Disease Control, and she wrote an excellent paper on opiate abuse and chronic pain, misconceptions and mitigation strategies. And that's in the New England Journal of Medicine 2016. So I will put a link to that. And what she found in her work is that physicians admitted that they were not confident about how to prescribe opiates safely how to detect abuse in the patient, or even how to diagnose emerging addiction, or even how to discuss these issues with their patient. So many of us are really not prepared to do that. And it's really, really important that we develop that strategy. 
and that we develop it in a way that is done with compassion. So it starts with that compassionate curiosity that we need when we try to have these discussions with patients and uh, realize that this is the pharmacology that can create a huge amount of disruption, especially in someone with a vulnerable brain. So why are opioids so challenging to stop in some patients? The reason is, is that they're incredibly effective in producing relief of pain, but they're also very effective in causing euphoria or that uh, increase in energy. And this has to do with our limbic system and how these, this is one of the reasons why you can see individuals developing opiate addiction from the non-medical use of opioids, as well as the medical use of opioids. So the brain learns very quickly the benefit which is reinforced with repetitive use. So that's that conditioning, that Pavlon conditioning. So when I experience pain, I take a medication, the medication works extremely well. So more I repeat, the more benefit I'm getting, the more that's reinforced. So it gives you relief. So your brain learns very early that this is an effective strategy. Very quickly though, what starts to happen, because this is the nature of the medication, is that patients will start to develop tolerance. So tolerance means that they need more of the medication to get the same benefit. And they also start to experience uh, dependency. And dependency, as you know, is not addiction. It really is how our body adjusts. It's a physical adaption to the adaptation to the opiate analgesic that when I pull that medication away, they're going to experience withdrawal. So tolerance and dependency contribute to increased use and aberrancy. So the challenge as well with dependency is that when patients are experiencing withdrawal, they often don't say or feel that I'm in withdrawal. What they'll say is that I have more pain or if they're getting that energy boost, I feel much worse. I feel like I have no energy. So it's important to recognize as well that there are two pathways to an opiate use disorder. Just like we mentioned, there's the medical use, an opiate use disorder, as well as the non-medical use. Now they both cause the same kind of syndrome, and they both require FDA-approved medication-based therapy to stabilize these life-threatening complications. But the talking points can be very different in these two populations. So engaging patients who have developed an opiate use disorder from the medical use of opioids will differ from those who began their opiate use non-medically. And there is emerging literature around this as well. Uh, So it is a really important point to understand. And I think where it became really apparent to me was in my work in the chronic pain clinic when I was working with clients that had developed opiate use disorder. It was really, really hard for the patient as well as myself to get them to a point so that they could understand that the behavior, and this behavior would be things like changing or altering the root of the medication, that that was a behavior that was specific to addiction that you would not see that behavior in someone, say, I was treating um, at the end of life with cancer pain. But it, it was a very, very challenging difficulty that I remember clearly in the pain clinic. When I went over to the opiate recovery program where we were seeing patients who had developed their opiate use non-medically, it was just a, a whole different kind of experience. And often patients who developed opiate use disorder non-medically seem to understand that the behavior that they had was causing addiction and uh, that they required treatment. So they seemed to be more accepting that it wasn't about the pain. It was more about the energy. And then finally, when they developed uh, an addiction, it was more about trying to stay out of withdrawal. And they recognized that. 
So it's uh, really uh, it's it's really complicated when we start to see the differences between the two populations, and it also is very challenging to get people on the treatment that they need, as well as trying to get them to stay safe. So an overall approach that I use to tapering opioids is that the first step is really letting patients know from the beginning. So singling a shift in your prescribing practice. So developing a policy as you would for any other high-risk medication that when we use these medications, that we provide very close oversight, that you're required to do some urine drug testing or screening and that you're going to do everything you can to keep the patient and the community safe. So singling a shift in the practice can be really important. So making safety a priority in that practice, it should not be about moral or ethical reasoning. So I always tell patients that they don't get to tell me how to prescribe these medications because it's very important that I keep them safe. There's an excellent video out there as well that talks about Brain Man Stops His Opioids. So sometimes I'll show patients this video it's developed by the Australian Pain Society. It's only a minute and 30 seconds. So you can sit with someone or you can actually uh, give that reference to the patient so that they can review that themselves so they can understand some of the challenges that are associated with opioids, especially over a long period of time. The second step after you've singled that shift or you've developed a strategy that helps to get everybody on the same page so the patient understands what to expect when you do use these medication. But if you're managing a legacy patient or someone that's been on these medications for a long time, they haven't had the close oversight that we're often requiring nowadays. So it's going to be very difficult for these patients. And we really do have to approach them uh, very differently in some ways. So step two is to develop an exit strategy that does not abandon the patient. And so these are often patients where you're not able to taper them. Uh, It's often the legacy patients who are on very high morphine equivalent daily dosing, so usually greater than 90 milligrams. These are patients, too, that are just sitting on the fence. You're not really sure that they have uh, addiction. However, their use, you can say with confidence, is problematic. So this could also include patients who do have addiction. So what I want to do for these patients is develop that strategy before I begin to taper. So there's that communication that's happening between me and the patient so they understand what to expect. So step three for me is asking myself, is the patient taking what I'm prescribing? And that may seem like a bizarre question, uh, especially if you've been working with this patient for many years and you have a certain good relationship with that patient, you feel confident that that patient is taking the medication responsibly. It can be quite surprising, however, when you start to do the monitoring. So what we need to understand, and we often take this very personally as healthcare providers that prescribe medication when we discover that our patient is diverting their opiate analgesics or other types of medications. And there's lots of reasons why patients divert medications. It's not about you as a prescriber. It's often many reasons. So it can be poverty. So there may be something where the patient is making decisions about this medication and whether or not they're going to divert that medication in order to get some money to buy milk. Uh, I'm not saying that that's okay. I'm just saying that that may be the driver for that patient. The patient may also be diverting the opiate analgesic that you've prescribed primarily because they're living with another addiction that they cannot afford. So they sell their medication to do that. There's many reasons, and there can also be abuse, whether that is a spousal abuse, there can be elder abuse. I can tell you some cases where 
uh, a child in the family, a young adult in the family, or uh, an older adult, sorry, uh, where there is an elder in the family, and they will have the elder go to the family physician to get medication because there is a, a disagreement or that a younger person is actually struggling with addiction. And uh, so it can be abuse as well. So it's really important to get at that. They could also be stockpiling their medication just in case. And that, that's problematic, however, because these are very high-risk medication. So it's really important not to take it personally, uh, approach it in a non-judgmental way. So how I um, determine whether or not the patient is taking what I'm prescribing, I usually, when I think about my six steps and I think about my mapping, which is how I monitor use, what I often will do is start with a urine drug screen. Um, now we have to know what we're using in the urine drug screen. So you need to know the kinds of things that are being tested and the thresholds in that urine drug screen from your, yeah, your local lab. The other thing that I encourage uh, family physicians to do is to send a urine for mass spectrometry or gas chromatography. And the reason why it's beneficial to do that is that the gas chromatography and the mass spec tends to be very much more specific to individual substances. So especially if your patient is on synthetic or semi-synthetic opiate analgesics and certain benzodiazepines. So they often do not show up in the point of care testing that is done in our local labs. So you would just do that mass spectrometer, send that urine to the local lab or the regional lab. So in Nova Scotia, we have one lab within the province that actually does this. And when we want to order that test, it's called a UDRMS. So I will send that off before I even begin to taper the patient. So that's one way that we can do it. If you're really concerned and there just seems to be a discrepancy and you're not able to pinpoint what the problem is, sometimes patients can be admitted to hospital in order to get a better handle. And I've done this with palliative care populations just to get their pain under control, only to discover that there was probably some diversion in the home. So there has to be a lot of care when you restart those medications. So you do want that supervision And often these patients need to be uh, uh, cut in half or tapered down fairly quickly. So the other choice you can have is to give the patient a two-week supply of medication, but uh, have the pharmacist or yourself call them back for a pill or solution count. This is another way that you can do some monitoring in order to see if the medication is being diverted. But when in doubt, especially if you're concerned about safety, always think about daily dispensing. Because not only... Do you have a pair of eyes on that patient, but the pharmacist does? And so you can get some good feedback. So just to remind ourselves what mapping is, is mapping is monitoring opiate use for aberrancy. So this is your urine drug screening. This would be prescription monitoring. These are the pill and solution counts. You want to adjust immediately if there is any aberrancy. So if you're seeing some discrepancy in the number of pills, what I often will do is uh, initially just weekly dispense And if I'm still seeing some problems, I will actually do daily dispense. And uh, this is really about the harm reduction strategy. So you're prescribing using those principles of harm reduction. So step four is asking yourself, what is the patient's readiness to change? So are they ready to taper? I love that quote that we've talked about many times in previous podcasts, that knowledge is possibility. It only has power if they're ready to use it or they know how to use it. So this is the motivational interviewing, what is the readiness to change, and also looking at harm reduction, keeping the community and patients safe 
and alive until they can get there, right? So until they can get to the point where they are on side. So if you feel that the patient has a addiction and if they're ready for treatment, you want to offer them FDA-approved treatment in an addiction framework. So this would be Suboxone or Methadone or Cadian, although Cadian would be a specific specialized long-acting form of morphine that often we don't go to initially in a patient that wants treatment. Sometimes I will do that if the patient is not ready. So they're just on the fence, but we know that we have to rotate them off the present opioid and hopefully get them to a point where they'll be wanting to get treatment. So that addiction framework is really about keeping them safe. It's really about helping to manage uh, the, the risk factors that might be there uh, and al- also making sure that we're getting the patient the treatment that they need. And it can make such a big difference when the patient is ready for treatment and when they get stable. It can be just life or death for them and a way for them to get their life back. And many patients are actually very grateful that we have the conversation and that we're helping them get the treatment that they need in that readiness to change. So if that patient is ready uh, for a taper, meaning that they don't have an addiction, but they're open to tapering, we need to be very compassionate with that. And think about things that we can use as adjuncts. So if they need to have any kind of opioid withdrawal therapy like clonidine, it's something to think about when you're doing those taper. In that taper, we, we need to remember that the patient did not prescribe opiates to themselves, that these were habits and behaviors that we promoted for our patient, And that now we're telling them that they don't need it anymore, even though initially they may have been told that they would need it for life. The other thing that I do in a patient where I'm really considering a taper of the opiate analgesic, sometimes I will send them to a pain self-management program, which we do have in our community prior to the taper, so they can start thinking about and developing other types of strategies to manage their complex pain. That's another option that you have, but then you're limiting uh, how much opiate they actually have. So how are you going to taper? Well, it really depends. And there's lots of different discussion about whether or not you would use a short-acting opiate analgesic or a long-acting to help them taper. In my experience, it's very, very difficult for patients to taper off short-acting opiate analgesics. But the important thing to remember is that the work to taper patients down or off these opiates is some of the most important and difficult work that we will ever do. So it really can be life-changing for patients to come off these medications. Most of them are very, very afraid to try and come off, but it can be life-changing. I tend to rotate patients to uh, long-acting, and, and generally I tend to switch them over to uh, Cadian. So this is where you might need to get some help from a local pain person that would you know, help you with that. Some of the challenges that happen with that short-acting is that it can actually start to keep that patient a little bit more pain-focused, but also, you know, trying to control the patient's withdrawal can be very, very difficult, especially with sleep as well. So I tend to switch them over to a controlled release uh, morphine, which is Cadian. And oftentimes you're decreasing that initial morphine equivalent down by about 5 to 10% of the total daily dose. And why that is, is because of the uh, cross tolerance that happens. So if your patient is on, we'll say just to round the number out, 100 milligrams of a morphine equivalent daily dose, if I'm switching them over to another opioid, I would be dropping that down by about 10%. So they would be going down to about 80 or 90. 
milligram morphine equivalent of the other opioid. So you can actually decrease them by 5 to 10%. So that first rotation that you actually do over to the long-acting morphine is actually a taper in itself, believe it or not. There are some protocols that will actually have you cut the patient in half. I think that's very, very difficult. I think cutting the patient by a third is probably the way to go. So once uh, a third of the original dose is reached, you can decrease by 5% every two to four weeks. It's okay to hold the dose or increase when appropriate, especially if the patient is experiencing severe withdrawal or significant worsening of pain or mood or reduced functioning during the taper. Especially the other concern is if they start adding in sedative hypnotics or alcohol use. Oftentimes we can finish the taper usually within two weeks to four months. And this is actually, uh, protocol is actually on the National Pain Center out of McMaster. So if you're looking for a reference, that's where it can happen. So switching patients to morphine can be very challenging. So I'm just looking at one patient that I was taking care of who was on a fentanyl patch, and she was receiving about 250 mics of fentanyl, which is about a 940 milligram morphine equivalent. That is a big dose of morphine. Switching her over to 900 milligrams of morphine is very difficult. So what I would do in that situation is I would actually just take small bites out of that fentanyl patch. So if she was on 250 mics, I would take 25 mics of the patch and continue with the 225 mics of fentanyl, uh, but then convert her 25 mic over to morphine. So it worked out uh, to about 100 milligrams of morphine, but I'm also going to drop that by 30%. So 70 milligrams of cadian because of that incomplete cross tolerance that we talked about. And then we're going to decrease the cadian by 5 to 10% and continue with that fentanyl 225 mics. Once she's at zero cadian, then I'm going to take another 25 mics of the fentanyl at 70 milligram and drop her down to 200 mics of the fentanyl. So the first drop would be from 250 to 225, add in that 70 milligrams of cadian, keep dropping that cadian by 10 milligrams, you know, every week until they come off and then take another 25 mics of the fentanyl patch. So that just kind of gives you an example. Another one would be somebody who is on eight milligrams of hydromorphone and they're getting that four times a day. So that's equivalent to about 160 milligrams of morphine equivalent. So I'm going to drop that by 30% because of that incomplete cross tolerance. And that gives me about 110 milligrams of cadian. And I'm going to decrease that by 10 milligrams uh, about every week or 5 to 10%. So you can also think about those other adjuncts that are going to help the patient with withdrawal. So when you think about clonidine, uh, you know, 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams, you know, two or three times a day. It just really helps with that withdrawal. You don't want to leave the patient on the clonidine long-term because of the rebound hypertension. Things like gravol, things like uh, Imodium or ibuprofen if they're experiencing significant withdrawal. But generally, if you're going, going slow, uh, working with the patient, then you should be able to get that patient off the medication. So let's just talk about incomplete cross-tolerance for a second. So it is it is something that we need to know about, especially if we're tapering uh, opiate analgesics and doing these morphine-equivalent uh, switches. So if switching from one opioid to another, it's recommended, uh, some of these protocols is recommended to start the new opioid at 50% of the equal analgesic dose what we do in palliative care is between a 25 and 30%, which seems to be more tolerated by the patient. 
And the reason you do that is because the tolerance a patient has towards one opioid may not be completely transferred. So this is where the incomplete cross-tolerance is. So it may not be completely transferred to the new opioid. So that's incomplete cross-tolerance. What I'm going to do at this stage is that I'm going to talk a little bit about the legacy patient and what the challenges could be there. But I think what we're going to do for now is we're going to close this one out for today and pick that up next week where we'll talk more about the tapering in the legacy patient. So thanks for spending some time with us today. Hopefully uh, you'll find this podcast helpful and we will discuss this next week. So have a great week, everyone. Make sure that you're staying safe. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.